Good morning. Pastor Stephanie and I are grateful for the time away you gave us for some rest and retreat, and we're grateful to be back with you all worshiping Jesus together, with you who are called by God, just as we are called. While you were enjoying a message about God's call on your own life last Sunday, so beautifully prepared and delivered by Miss Kathy Nimmer, can I get an amen? amen? While you were doing that, Stephanie and I were also hearing from God about our own calling. God's still small voice was reminding us of our primary call as your pastors. God has called us first and foremost to love you all deeply and attentively. Now, I'm not trying to be over-sentimental right at the start, but it's the plain truth. You are the people God has called us to love as your pastors. And this is a beautiful calling because you are the people who are beautiful in the eyes of God. That's how God sees you, and I pray that's how you see yourselves. If you don't see yourself as beautiful, you might want to pay special close attention to the Word of God for you today. Now, Miss Kathy did not know it at the time, but last week she was actually laying the foundation for a four-week sermon series entitled, God is Calling. Last week, Kathy brought to life the story of Samuel's call. Through this story, God makes clear the fact that each and every one of us is called by God. We are quick to list off all the reasons that disqualify us from God's employment. So too was Moses and many other great servants of God. But scripture makes clear that our qualification comes from God. It is by grace that we are called, each and every one of us. So that was the message for us last week, and it serves as the foundation for the rest of our sermon series. Today we build on that message by considering in detail just one dimension of our calling, our focus. What is God calling us to focus on? If it's true that God is calling us, then what should be our focus as we seek to live into that call? How should we fix our thoughts as we go about our days? What should we give our full attention to? What is worthy of our best concentration and effort? 1 Samuel 16 and the calling of David provide the answer, I think. And I'll give you a hint. What God is calling us to focus on has everything to do with what God focuses on. So before we hear exactly what that is, let us pray for the illumination of the Spirit's Gracious God, we are unqualified and imperfect and far too weak from a human perspective to hear your call and obey it. But from your divine perspective, all things are possible. Bring your power of love to bear on us this morning, to us who are hungry for good news. Bring your power through your gospel to us who are hungry for you. Holy Spirit of God, make us aware of our appetite for the divine. Humble our hearts and open our minds to be receptive to your word, your calling, your focus, your life that is truly life. We pray this in the name of Jesus, the life giver. Amen. As we approach chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, you should know that the boy Samuel, whom we heard about last week, has now grown up into a man. He's become the father of two sons, both of whom tragically fail to follow in his footsteps. 
So Israel needs a leader and they demand a king because that's what they see all the other nations doing. God warns them that this is a bad idea for they need no king but God, but their demand persists. Eventually, God accommodates to their request and Saul becomes the first king of Israel. Now, it doesn't take long for the people to realize that God was right. That's how it goes in our lives as well, doesn't it, when we don't take God's advice? Saul dodges God's call on his life, and eventually it drives him crazy, literally. So now the story picks up with the call of another boy, a boy who will be remembered as the iconic king of the, New Test- of the Old Testament. This boy will become the one who foreshadows the king of kings. The greatness of all other kings will be measured against the greatness of this king. But for now, he's just a boy, insignificant and overlooked. This is the story of his calling. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and set out. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me the one whom I named to you. So Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? He said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons, and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, Samuel looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. He said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. He said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. He sent and brought him in. Now, he had a healthy complexion and beautiful eyes and was handsome. The Lord said, rise and anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Samuel then set out and went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. So what is God calling us to focus on as we go about fulfilling God's call on our lives? 
What does God focus on as he calls his next king? Somebody shout it out, would you? The heart. Yes. You were in the prayer meeting before. That was a little unfair. (laughs) Before we explore more directly what it means to focus on the heart, let's dig into the story a bit more, shall we? Samuel, the boy from last week, has now become a powerful prophet. He is God's right-hand man. He is also King Saul's right-hand man. That explains the reaction of the city elders in our passage. I wonder if, those re- if their reaction surprised you when you read it, when I read it. It surprised me the first time I read it. Verse 4, the elders of the city came to meet him trembling. Why did they tremble? For one, they are not expecting him. These are the leaders of the small town of Bethlehem. And Bethlehem is outside of Samuel's normal preaching circuit. Bethlehem is a place for shepherds, not prophets and politicians. Samuel showing up in Bethlehem would be somewhat like the vice president showing up in battleground. What's more, at this time in history... Bethlehem is outside of Saul's jurisdiction. It's just outside of Saul's northern northern kingdom. So get this. So the city is ruled by local officials, elders of the city, our passage calls them. And that's the way the people like it. They can run things as they'd like without the heavy-handed oversight of Saul's administration. So when Samuel shows up in their city, they tremble. They assume his presence spells trouble. Their fault lies in the fact that they are focusing on Samuel's outward reputation. As far as they know, he is still Saul's right-hand man, and when the king's top officials visit your city, it's not to have a cup of tea. They visit only to take, never to give. Everyone knows that. That's why the city leaders tremble. Certainly Samuel has come on behalf of the king, they think, to lay claim to their beloved Bethlehem. So when Samuel states his reason for visiting, you better believe it raised some eyebrows. They ask, do you come in peace? He replies, yes, I come in peace. I have come to sacrifice, to lead you in worship. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann explains, only the most naive could imagine this great one from the north came south for a mere sacrifice. Suspicious though the elders might be, at this call to worship, what choice do they have but to follow along? Now, as they follow along and they join the sacrifice, what comes next is an even bigger shock to the leaders of Bethlehem, and no less troubling. Samuel invites a guy named Jesse, whom we know nothing about, to the sacrifice. He's asked to bring along his sons as well, and Samuel proceeds to line them up like a bunch of kids on the school playground, hoping to be picked for the team. Now, no one else knows the reason for the parade of sons, only Samuel and God. The parade of sons begins with Eliab, probably Jesse's oldest. He's tall and probably strong, and Samuel can't contain his excitement. Yes, surely this is the one. The one for what, everyone else must be thinking. This worship service now appears to have turned into a fashion runway, One by one, the sons make their way down the catwalk. In Samuel's eyes, Eliab seems to be the perfect candidate for Israel's next top model. I mean, Israel's next king. 
But remember, Israel already has a king. His name is Saul. And you know how dangerous and consequential it is to name someone as king when there's already one in place. But that's what Samuel is doing here. Shockingly, that's what God is calling Samuel to do here. And that's why the leaders of Bethlehem tremble and must be terrified when they figure it out. What will the current king do when they find out about this stunt? So that's the background behind the main thrust of our passage. I share it because I hope it helps you feel the drama of what's going on in this most important story. Now we explore the main event. Let's go back to Samuel's excitement at the first candidate for the king. He sees Eliab, and he's got king written all over his appearance. So Samuel blurts out, surely the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord. Now when I say he's got king written all over his appearance, you know what I mean, don't you? In every culture, there is a certain look that we expect prominent leaders to have. We want them to appear a certain way, perhaps powerful and trustworthy and competent. Then we decide what outward characteristics makes one powerful and trustworthy and competent. Tall, strong, eloquent, a deep voice, physically attractive, well-dressed, impressive credentials, a good family. We do this not only with our politicians, but with our pastors as well. Unless churches are intentional about doing otherwise, search teams revert to this default mode of thinking. They look for someone who appears to fit the look of a senior pastor, however they've defined that look. In my opinion, this is the primary reason so many gifted, talented women that Stephanie and I know who graduate seminary, they never find a call to serve in a local church as a senior pastor. They just don't fit the look. So when Samuel sees Eliab, he's got the look of a leader. But then comes our key verse for today, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Samuel focused on outward appearances. For all his experience as God's right-hand man, he has not yet learned what to focus on. He knows that he's called, by, he's called by God and he's served God for many years. But Samuel still has not learned where to put his focus. It's not until he's corrected by God in this instance that he learns to align his focus with God's. People look on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. So for this reason, God takes a pass on the first seven sons of Jesse. Instead, God goes out of his way to bring in the kid whose resume never landed him an interview. Is this it? Samuel asks. Are there no more sons? Well, <laughs> technically there's one more, but, but he's the runt of the bunch. We didn't even bother to invite him to the sacrifice. He's not here. He's out keeping the sheep. Friends, that is God's choice, the runt of the bunch, the shepherd boy, David. It is he who will become in time the iconic king of Israel. Why is David's God's choice? Because of God's focus 
We focus on the face, but God focuses on the heart. Now, if the great experienced prophet Samuel lacked the proper focus in this key moment, then how do we fare as 21st century Christians who live in a culture far more focused on appearances? It's no secret, is it, that everything in our culture tries to persuade us to have the focus of Samuel. Focus on outward appearances, we are told, countless times over. You're only as good as you look. The massive marketing industry is built on this premise. With stunning success, they have convinced almost every American that what they currently have is not good enough, whatever that is. It's hardly a matter of whether we've been duped, but simply how. Countless people are persuaded every day that what they currently have is not good enough, and what they need is just within reach. So focus on your appearance, your image, your reputation, we are told, commercial after commercial, billboard after billboard, so much so that this idea has become a part of the soul of America. Perhaps it is the soul of America. What will improve my appearance to others? Like a dog with a bone, we've been trained by advertisers to ask this question. God may look at the heart, but come on. We all know what really counts is how other people see us. Now, why this problem might be as ancient as our scripture text for today, it has now taken on a monstrous life of its own in our culture. Let's be honest with ourselves. How much time do we spend trying to control how other people perceive us? A new study out of Notre Dame interviewed college students about their use on Facebook. There were no outliers. Everybody in the study agreed. You must only post positive things about yourself on Facebook. You must only project the sort of image that will attract others. It doesn't matter if that's a distortion of who you really are. It's just the game you have to play. Everyone is doing it. Your future schooling and career and love life depend on it. That's because your Facebook image will be checked out by future employers, grad schools, and romantic interests. So all the students of Notre Dame in this study agreed that your focus on Facebook must be on your outward appearance. How much time do we spend trying to manage other people's opinion of us. Of course, Facebook is just the newest way to mask our insecurities. We can go back in time, way back to the ancient Greek myth, and look at another example. There we find a story about a man named Narcissus. He's led to a pool and sees his own reflection He falls in love with what he sees, unaware that it's a reflection only of himself. Unable to leave the beauty of his reflection, Narcissus loses the will to live. He stares at his reflection in the pool until he dies. From this ancient Greek myth, we get our word narcissist. But we have it harder than narcissists, I think. Because while narcissists had to rely on the dim reflection of a pool, we have unrestricted access to glass mirrors. This is a relatively recent development. Only in the last 200 years have mirrors become mainstream. Did you know that? For most of human history, imagine, 
people had to rely only on dim and muddied reflections of themselves. That was the Apostle Paul's experience, which is why he talks about how we see in a mirror dimly or darkly. That's the only mirrors they had available at the time. But eventually the mirror was improved, and only the wealthiest people at first could afford the luxury of a good mirror. It's even reported that in the late 1600s, a rich woman traded an entire wheat farm for a good mirror, and she considers it a bargain. This good mirror would have been fairly small, uh, smaller than the one here, about 40 square inches at most. Now, it wasn't until 200 years ago that certain discoveries and inventions resulted in the mass production of mirrors. Now, there are multiple mirrors in every one of our houses, vast stretches of mirror reflecting everything we like and hate about our bodies. So consider the impact this has on our focus. This example isn't to say that mirrors are inherently bad and Christians shouldn't own them. Our bodies, after all, are not bad, but created good by God. Furthermore, to aim at physical health is faithful stewardship of our bodies. And beauty is a gift from God. But there is a difference between exercising for physical health and exercising to improve others' opinion of us. The difference lies in the heart, and God looks on the heart. So consider the extent to which the omnipresence of mirrors now impacts our focus on a regular basis. If the Greek character Narcissus loses his life by staring at his reflection in a pool, and if the prophet Samuel is corrected by God for focusing on outward appearances, then what sort of monstrous enemy are we up against in a culture full of mirrors, marketing, and image management? Honestly now, how much time do we spend trying to control how other people see us, or trying to control how we see ourselves. Before we take a turn to the gospel of grace amidst our troubling situation, let me just add Jesus' critique to the mix. Jesus is a very observant person, one who focuses on the heart of the matter. So when Jesus observes church life, he notices how people are trying to improve their outward appearance through religion. He sees people working really hard at religious things in order to control how other people perceive them. He sees folks trying to secure for themselves a good reputation by attaining to a certain religious status. Here's what Jesus says about the matter in the first century, though we could certainly identify 21st century parallels. Matthew 23. Everything they do, they do to be noticed by others. They make extra-wide prayer bands for their arms and long tassels for their clothes. They love to sit in places of honor at banquets, think church dinners. They love to be greeted with honor in the markets and to be addressed as rabbi or teacher or elder or pastor. Dallas Willard calls this temptation 
the lure of religious respectability. (laughs) The lure of religious respectability. It is perhaps the most toxic form of image management, the one Jesus spends the most time correcting. Matthew 6, Jesus speaks to this temptation, this drive to improve one's appearance before others by doing religious things. He says, beware of practicing your piety before others in order to be seen by them. The problem here lies with the intent of the religious practitioner. Beware of practicing your religion in order to be seen by others. Now remember, Jesus has already said to let your light shine before others. So it's not a matter of whether or not people see. What matters is one's intent, one's motive, one's heart. And you can't fool God by what's on the surface. God focuses on the heart. So the reason we are to let our light shine is so others praise our Father in heaven. But the enemy has tricked many hearts into thinking that religion is going to improve our reputation. So that's the reason we do it. We must take Jesus' Jesus' warning seriously. The message paraphrase puts it well. Be especially careful when you are trying to be good so that you don't make a performance out of it. It might be good theater, but the God who made you won't be applauding. So let me ask us one more time. How much time do we spend trying to control how other people view us? How focused are we at trying to convince ourselves that I am good, that I am lovable, that I am pretty? People focus on outward appearances, even on outward religious practices, but God focuses on the heart. So where does this leave us? The aged prophet Samuel focused on outward appearance when lining up potential candidates for the next king. We focus on outward appearance a million times more because we are blinded by the God of this age. So what now? After examining the situation, I think there's only one move we can make. There's only one thing left to do. We must cry out to God with the Apostle Paul, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from the body of death? Wretched person that I am, who will rescue me from the body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thanks be to God, who focuses on the heart. Thanks be to God, who sees us not as we project ourselves to be, but as we really are, and in the face of it, loves us immeasurably. Thanks be to God, who frees you from all your insecurities that drive you to look good by defining you definitely as the beloved child of God. And thanks be to Jesus Christ, our Lord, whose loveliness is in a cross. Thanks be to Jesus Christ, who makes beauty out of ashes. Thanks be to Jesus Christ, our Lord, who puts ugliness to death. Thanks be to Jesus Christ, who brings to life in us the very image 
of God, which is the most dazzling, stunning thing you will ever see. Listen to Paul ponder this mystery. The end of 2 Corinthians 3, he says, All of us are looking with unveiled faces. Get this picture in your mind, would you? All of us are looking with unveiled faces at the glory of the Lord as if we were looking in a mirror. We are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to the next. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Friends, according to God's word, God is working on your heart, and God will bring this work to completion. What God is making of your heart is a masterpiece. If you trust in Jesus, you can have confidence that God is conforming your heart, who you are deep down, into the image of Jesus. So that when you look in the mirror someday, you will see reflected back to you the most dazzling, stunning beauty of Jesus Christ. Friends, Jesus is the most beautiful person who ever was, whoever is, and whoever will be. And one day, when we look in the mirror, we shall see the reflection of Christ. Friends, if this is true, then what do we have to be insecure about? One day, we shall see ourselves as God sees us. God wants to help us enjoy the benefits of seeing clearly now. What we will see on that day when we look in the mirror is not a body that we are ashamed of. It's not a nose that we wish were different or a waist we wish were thinner. What we will see on that day when we look in the mirror is the glory of the Lord in us. We are being transformed, you and I, into the image of God the Son from one degree of glory to the next. God is focused on this work of renovating our hearts. And God wants us to be focused there as well. So since that's what we will one day see in the mirror, God wants us to start practicing now. God focuses on the heart, so God wants us to put all of our focus on the heart as well. God invites us even this week to focus on the heart of others and on our own hearts. On the heart of others, so that when we see people, we actually see people. That is, we make it our aim to see into the heart, soul, character, and intent of the person. We do not prejudge them, as Samuel and Jesse did, making a decision about the boy David before they knew his heart. That's what prejudice is, prejudging, judging before we know the truth of one's inner life. Who knows, perhaps they too will one day shine forth with the beauty of the image of Christ. Perhaps we'll have the joy in this age of seeing a glimmer of that beauty in them. So let us focus this week on the heart of others. And God invites us to do the same with ourselves. Play a little game with yourself this week and try to look at the mirror as little as possible. Now, if you're a husband to a wife who's practicing this, you have to make sure you tell her that she's still beautiful, all right? Otherwise, it's not going to work. But even more importantly, when you look in the mirror, God calls you to look 
not on outward appearances, but to look on your heart. Perform a heart scan in front of that mirror, not on the one that pumps blood, but on the one that shapes your life. How is your heart? What does God see when he sees your heart? If you're anything like me, this practice will call you to confession. If so, then confess to the one who loves to forgive. Confess to the one who has begun a good work in you. The one who promises to bring it to completion. Take comfort in the truth that God is not only in the business of renovating hearts, God is also in the business of creating new hearts. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Friends, God focuses on our hearts. Let us return the favor by focusing on the heart of God. Let us pray. Spirit of the Lord, come mightily upon us from this day forward, as you did when Samuel anointed David. You have anointed us with your word this morning. Your word is like honey, sweet to our lips, nourishing. We pray, O God, that your Holy Spirit would come upon us mightily now, that we might focus on what you focus on, the heart. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.